Uh, let me invite you now to open your book, Bibles, to the book of Romans. We are in chapter 1 and will be for a few more weeks, not too many more, maybe a couple of more. Um, and today, uh, what's printed in your bulletin in terms of what I'm going to read and probably what Shemaine has on there, it's not going to be the same as what I read. It's not her fault, it's mine. <laughs> I changed it this morning. And uh, so sometimes during the night you get light and revelation, hopefully from the Holy Spirit. Not always sure, but hopefully. And I, I want to read again, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 18, and I will read through verse 25. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Hear, hear now the word of the living God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that as we take time to look at this passage, uh, which is in many ways uh, overwhelming when we really think about it. It's very dark and very hard for us to hear and even more difficult for us to receive at times. But we do pray that in your goodness and graciousness, your spirit would penetrate our defenses and our resistance and our deception and reveal to us that which is true and that which is righteous and that which is holy and that which we need to hear. So we trust you to do that, not because we deserve it, we don't, but because you are good. And this we pray in Christ's name, amen. And so last week I touched on the first several verses, uh, verse 18 and following, but I wanted to kind of summarize them for you quickly. If you go back and look at verse 16, it tells us that the gospel 
is good news because it's a revelation of the righteousness of God. In other words, what the gospel tells us is how we can become right with God through the righteousness of another, not our own. We cannot produce a righteousness that is acceptable to God. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus had to be a man. That's why he had to live the life we can't because we're sinful and rebellious. And that's why he had to die the death that we all deserve to be abandoned by God. And so he gives us in exchange for our unrighteousness and our sin and our filth and our liability to judgment and curse, he takes all of that upon himself and hands to us his beautiful, glorious robe of righteousness. Now to some of you, that lights your fire. That gets you excited. You like it. You can't hear that enough. But to some of you, no. That's why Paul begins to talk about the wrath of God. He said, most of you do not know what you're being saved from. You need to be saved from God. That's who you need to be saved from. Because God is not only a God of mercy and goodness and grace and love and faithfulness, but he's a God who is righteous and holy and just. And a God of wrath, a God who in his nature finds himself, as it were, that's for Mark Anderson, as it were. If you come to Wednesday night, you'll know that. Finds himself offended, greatly, deeply offended at what people have done to how he has revealed himself through the media of creation. God has clearly shown to every single person alive that has a heartbeat and a pulse that he is there and he is not silent and he speaks to us through the media of creation and he reveals himself, certain qualities of himself. And until we understand the nature of God, we will never really appreciate the righteousness of Christ becoming ours. We don't know how lost we are. We don't know how broken we are. We don't know how needy we are. We don't see it. We're in the dark about it. We are deceived about it. We're so gullible and naive and susceptible to lies. And so the reason why Paul jumps from talking about the best good news you will ever hear to the worst bad news you will ever know it's because he wants you to understand why the gospel is such good news. And so he gives us a great measure of bad news here. And it's really bad. Really, really, real bad. Like the time my grandson, right on the day they were moving out of the house, took magic markers that do not erase and wrote all over his bedroom. And he came in and told his mother, he didn't even tell her what he did, he just... By the way, this grandson's graduating in a week. But he, that's how old that story is. But he went in and told his mom, he just walked in and he looked down at the floor, you know, he looked like he had killed somebody. And he said to her, Mom, it's bad. <laughs> now, if you're a mother, that's the last thing you want to hear. Your young, I don't know, maybe two-year-old son say to you. And then he followed with, it's real bad. 
and it was. Now, I'm making light there, but what you're going to hear this morning is real bad. Why does God's wrath hover over his creation? Because people have done a very ungodly, wicked thing. I have done a very ungodly and wicked thing. You have done a very ungodly and wicked thing. We have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. We have stifled it. If you ever watched All in the Family, you remember that Archie Bunker used to say to his ditzy wife, Edith, stifle, stifle it. And that's what we, we hold down. We suppress the truth. We repress, as it were, the truth. Not allowing it to inform our lives of God's reality. Because we don't want him to be there. We don't have to want to answer to him. I'm re reminded that uh, it was Karl Marx who said, religion is the opium or opiate of the masses because it gives them some sort of false hope that after your 70, 80 years, if you're fortunate, uh, your life will have some sort of meaning. There will be some sort of reckoning. There will be some sort of justice administered. But I would say, on the other hand, for all of my atheist and ag agnostic friends, that atheism is the ultimate opiate for the masses. Why? Because if you can get rid of the notion of God, if you can fine-tune him out of the picture, that's so old in the fine-tuning television sets. <laughs> uh, showing my age. Yeah. If we can get God out of the picture, then we got nobody to answer to. All this stuff about judgment at the end is a bunch of hooey. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to deal with that. That is the opiate of the lost man. I will agree so insofar as Marx said it's the opiate of the masses of religious people, but not gospel people, not real Christians. And so, as we look at this today, I want us to take our time. My wife asked me this morning, what are you preaching about today? And she rarely does that, but she did today. And I said, idolatry. I said, you know, I talked about that not too long ago. She said, well, I'm still doing it. Preach it. <laughs> That's why I love that woman. One of the reasons I, I adore her. She's supportive. Now, people are doing a very ungodly thing, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And that leads to certain consequences. Paul is going to give a description here of what people do as they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There's really only one thing left for them at that point, and it's idolatry. Why? Because we're natural born, graven in the image of God in us, is a heart that must worship someone or something. We've got to have hope. We've got to have a sense of being somebody. We've got to have a sense that there is some raison d'etre or reason for our being. 
We ask the questions like, who am I? Why am I? Where did I come from? What is my purpose in being now? Where do I go when I die? All those questions plague us. But we have suppressed the truth, and now we believe a lie. We have turned from the creator to what he has made, the creature and creation itself. And from that, we desire to worship and draw life from something other than God. Which is ridiculous, but we do it incessantly. We can't seem to stop ourselves from doing it. And so, Paul makes very clear in this passage a number of very important things about the nature of idolatry. Verse 20 tells us that God's eternal power and his divine nature are revealed by nature and even looking at and thinking about the world. This means looking at the world should show you, number one, that there is a God and he exists and that he is to be worshipped because he is a divine nature, that there it must be a personal creator who brought all this about and that God is worthy of worship and respect. He has eternal power. And uh, whoever created all of what we see before us must be a being of imaginable, unimaginable greatness. Uh, I have some quotes here by some people who have thought about this a great deal just looking at creation. I don't know whether to read it. They're kind of uh, pointy-headed and long. I'll read one of them just for fun. Uh, there is a man by the name of, if I can find it up here, if I can't find it, I won't read it, Roger Penrose. Roger Penrose is a celebrated uh, Oxford professor of math, physics, and philosophy of science, and he marvels at the mathematical scientific laws that so perfectly describe or ordain the natural order. But when he wonders, what he wonders is their source. Not the human mind, for laws have operated since the universe began. Penrose has studied what he calls the fine-tuning of the universe, which seems perfectly suited to the emergence of life. For example, the universe has two functions, according to Penrose. Entropy, which disperses energy and objects randomly, and equally, eventually, and gravity, which brings things together. Matter is both spaced out and clustered, so that neither flies apart into total disorganization due to entropy, nor collapses into a titanic black hole due to gravity. The equilibrium between entropy and gravity is almost impossibly fine in the universe. Penrose calculated the odds of this life-giving equilibrium arising by chance to be one in ten followed by so many zeros that if every particle in the universe had a zero on it, there would not be enough zeros to reach the correct number. Now there's a lot of particles in the universe. Consider that one human body has 40 trillion cells with about 100 trillion atoms in each cell so that one human body has far more atoms than there are stars in the universe. But a human body is infinitesimal 
compared to one star, and there are roughly two times 10 to the 23rd power stars in the universe, as far as we know. It's almost impossible to conceive how unlikely it is that a life-supporting universe would emerge by chance without a creator designer, and yet, after calculating all of this, Penrose still remains agnostic. Do you see how we hold the truth down and suppress it in unrighteousness? We hold it down. I don't know who it was that said believing that the universe just happened through some sort of process. It's like believing a tornado could blow through a junkyard and assemble a Boeing 747 jet. Do you see how stupid that is? With all due respect, that's stupid. <laughs> and it's just unbelief. But that unbelief goes somewhere. It doesn't just stop with us pretending like there is no God that we have, with whom we have to do, or with whom we have to answer. And so, we begin to do something called counterfeit God construction. Since we don't want to deal with the real God, we've got to make his replacements. Romans 1.25 tells us that idols are not sinful things necessarily, but good and basic things elevated into being ultimate things. We look to them for meaning in life, for covering our sense of insignificance and for developing a righteousness and a worth. Martin Lloyd-Jones said years ago, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central to my life, anything that seems to me essential, an idol is anything by which I live on and by which I depend and anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time, attention, energy, and money. What is the motivation for idolatry? Where does that come from? Romans 1, 21 tells us the reason we make idols is because we want to control our own lives. The older I get, the more I see in me just a drivenness to control things but there's a equal and opposite thing that I'm seeing even more I can't I cannot control things I really don't have much control over very much mainly my responses but we begin to construct idols and that comes or flows out of the other sin predisposes us to want to be independent of God, to be laws unto ourselves. That's what autonomy is. So that we can do what we want without bowing to anyone else's authority. At the most basic level, idols are what we make out of the evidence of God, for God within ourselves and in the world. And if we do not want to face the face of God himself and his majesty and holiness, rather than look to the creator and have to deal with his lordship, we orient our lives toward the creation where we can be more free to control and shape our lives in every desired direction.
since we were made to relate to God but do not want to face him and let him shape us and control us, thus we forever inflate things in the world to religious proportions to fill the vacuum left by God's exclusion. We don't just eliminate God, but we erect God's substitutes in his place. And we all do it. We all do it, which is why we need the gospel so desperately. Now, how do these motivations affect us in idolatry? They create something called distorted thinking. Romans 21 tells us each idol creates a delusional field, a whole set of assumptions and false definitions of success and failure, which are distortions of reality brought about by the idol. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were Darkened. One of my favorite writers on this subject is David Pallison. He's now with the Lord. He had a Ph.D. from Harvard in psychology and a Ph.D. in theology from Westminster. So he's pretty smart. Here's what he said. Your idols define good and evil in ways contrary to God's definitions. They spin out a whole false belief system. They establish a locus of control that is earthbound, either in objects, lust for money, other people, I need to please my father, or myself, attainment of my personal goals. Such false gods create false laws, false definitions of success and failure, of values and stigma. Idols promise blessings and warn of curses for those who succeed or fail their standards. If I can just get these certain people to like me or if I can just make enough money and they will respect me, then my life will be validated. I told you everybody's hungry for righteousness and at the essence, righteousness is validation. We all want to be validated. And there's no greater validation you can get than the being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that defines who you are. You see, everybody's hungry for righteousness. Everybody wants it, but you'll never get it. The route of idolatry. We worship and serve created things. Worship and service always go together. Because whatever I worship, whatever I see, something that has value to me, and I want to give praise and glory to that which has value to me the most, then I either worship God or I worship created things and I serve them, but that service to idolatry always results in addiction. Addiction. You ever known anybody addicted? You ever been addicted yourself? I tell you, I know people, nobody in this room because you're all godly people, Right? I know people, if you took their phone away from them, they would die. I'm not too far behind that, but I'm not quite there yet. Would die. Life would cease to be. And so we get addicted to stuff. We get in bondage to stuff. That's how it works. Paul says that God gives them over to the sinful desires of the heart. That means the things we serve will never free us. They will never give us real joy. Rather, they can control us, and God gives us over to them. 
parodidomai in the Greek means that God abandons us to our idols. He lets go. He removes restraint. I mean, is it just me? But have you been thinking people that you listen to and hear about saying all kinds of stuff in our culture are absolutely out of their mind? It isn't that they're just, okay, I can see that point of view. It's insanity. And that's what idolatry leads to. Ultimate self-contradiction and destruction. And so it leads to distorted thinking. It leads to emotional bondage. Each idol darkens the heart. It enslaves us. Whatever we worship, we must serve. And the way an idol enslaves us is that it creates over-desires or inordinate, uh, inordinate longings. Inordinate desires are over-desires. And there's so many things I could address with that. But I do want to move on because we only have so much time. But idolatry is the sin underneath every sin in our life. The Ten Commandments begins with two commandments against idolatry. Then commandments three to ten. Why this order? It is because the fundamental problem is always idolatry. Why do I do anything to oppose God? I'll tell you why. Because I'm feeding that idol. That idol is hungry. That idol demands so much out of me. But it is so self-destructive. It is so self-destructive. See, a lot of people go, well, Pastor, I, uh, I'm having a real problem with worry, and I know worry is a sin, so I'm going to pray the Lord will take away my worry. Good luck with that, as John Calvin would say. Why do I say that? Because you're not really dealing with worry. Because what is the sin underneath worry? My over-desire for control. I want God. I was at this point. There we are. Thank you for hustling on that. Thank you so much. Idolatry is the reason we do anything wrong. Why do we lie? Why do we fail to keep promises? Why do we live selfishly? 
course, the general answer is because we're weak and sinful, but the specific answer is there's always something besides Jesus Christ that you feel you must have to be happy, something that is more important to your heart than God, something that is spinning out of delusional field and enslaving the heart through inordinate desires. So the secret of change is to identify the idols of the heart and put them to death by soaking yourself in the love of Jesus Christ and his grace for you, which makes you want to let it go and repent. But those idols do a number on us. They lead to bondage and addiction, as I've already said. Uh, and since this, uh, our hearts are never satisfied, we turn to idols. Another great, great quote excuse me, comes from Rebecca Pippert who wrote a book, Out of the Salt Shaker, which I would highly recommend. She says this, she's really smart. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. A way to tell what your idols or your functional masters are is to ask the question, what is my greatest horror? What if I lost this would deprive me of even the desire to live? What do I need in order to accept myself? That's your Lord. That's your God. That's your functional God. I don't care what you say your God is. That is your functional God. Some examples of uh, personal idols that may help you here is workaholism. That is, work becomes the thing you live for to be productive and useful. And you will lose everything to keep that idol going. Codependent enabling. Needing to feel needed is what you live for. And you will let a person use and abuse and damage you if you feel like you have a chance to be their Messiah and save them. It's a good thing to care about people. It's a good thing to be compassionate toward people. It's a good thing to help people. But over-desires leads to what? Bondage. Every time, every single time. Beauty and image, which can lead to eating disorders or taking all kinds of stuff out there now I mean every time I go to Facebook and I'm running down the page I'm seeing Phil, Phil Nicholson at 250 pounds and the next picture of him right beside it is he's 190 pounds and if I'll just buy what he took I'll be right there with him sucker born every minute isn't it or what is this Ozempic stuff that people are shooting up taken now I understand the desire I understand how hard it is to lose weight I understand people want to look good and feel good and whatever I'm not against that God isn't either but when it causes us to trample upon his will for us it has officially become a capital I idol and we will break God's law to have it 
And so there are lots of things we do, bondages and addictions over and over, um, sex and physical gratification. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. Romance. You live for crushes or for somebody to love you. Perfectionism in general, materialism. What are some cultural idols that we see happen? And these all happen because we take the truth of God and choke it. We suppress it. We press it down. We don't want it in our consciousness. We don't want it informing us. And so we place God on the peripheria or peripheral out here where he can't mess with us. Where we don't have to deal with him. And then I pursue my real gods. Perfect, perfectionism is an idol. Materialism. Here's some. Fascism. Make an idol of one's race or nationality. I am acceptable because I am and blank. Rather than getting your identity as a child of God. Communism. Make an idol of the state. Government. Not God will solve all our problems. Marx said, every, Marx said everything is political and all problems are political economic ones rather than spiritual ones. It's a corporate idol. Uh, rigid multiculturalism. One's ethnic group or culture is sovereign. No one can criticize it. It is absolute rather than the word of God. Enlightenment and humanism make an idol of reason and scientific investigation. Science has an answer for everything, and reason will open all of these doors. At the root of all problems, personal and social, all non-Christian philosophies and ideologies, is the elevation of some created thing to the place of ultimate worship. And it kills us over and over. The arbiter of truth and meaning. Now, I would say as we continue, and I'm about to wrap up here. Oh, wow. I've been going a while, hadn't I? I feel like I just got started. So let me summarize what I've said up to this point because Romans 1, get it, get this. Paul talks about the wrath of God to show us how desperately we need Jesus' righteousness. That's what he's doing. There's no joy in this for anyone. I don't get any joy in talking about this. It gets next to me. It convicts me of sin. It draws a circle around me. But here's the deal. I'll wrap it up. First, there's unbelief. We know God, but we reject him as God and seek to be our own God and Savior. Though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks. Unrighteousness, fear and a sense of spiritual nakedness, a loss of righteousness, a sense of shame and unworthiness. Genesis 3 tells us, then they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Idolatry. We serve created things instead to maintain our independence from God, yet to still replace the lost worth validation and righteousness. Slavery, whatever we worship, we serve. And since we must have these things, we serve to cover our own unworthiness. They drive us to over-desires and effort to get them and fill us with fear and anger. If we fail to attain them and punish us with terrible self-loathing, therefore everyone is in a covenant service to a Lord 
that works its will out through our bodies. Even after conversion, our old false saviors and lords have continued power. Though we intellectually deny them, our hearts still functionally acknowledge them unless the Holy Spirit brings renewal in us. Our fear, anger, and habits still arise from false saviors that we still deeply feel we must have for our value. So the key is uprooting res residual leftover salvation systems, self-salvation systems. Sin only matter, masters us if we let these old idols continue to force us to earn our salvation through them. Sin will no longer be your master, for you are no longer under law, but you are under grace. If I were to ask you today, do you have any sin you're repenting of? Some of you would look at me and go, no, I'm a Christian. And I would say, you're in trouble. If I were to ask you, are, is there any sin you're repenting of, it would have to be idolatry. I do this so often, I can't tell you how often I do it because the Holy Spirit brings to mind just a heaviness inside, a sense of, all right. And he, the Holy Spirit, shows me my sin not to condemn me for it, but to lead me to Jesus who suffered the shame, pain, and death for that sin and gives me righteousness. What a great thing. So what about you? Are you suppressing the truth and unrighteous? Or are you a genuine believer who has seen the light, so to speak? You're aware of all of these things, but you also are aware daily that you're struggling. That's what Romans 7, 14, where Paul says, I, I hate what I do. I don't agree with what I do. I hate that I sin. I don't want to sin, but I sin. And he struggles with this normative Christian experience tension that we all have because we still live in the kingdom of this world and its darkness, and we're already in the kingdom of God. And so the tension between those two worlds hits us all the time, and we live in a constant sense of struggle and warfare. That's normal. That's normal. It's not weird. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It means that you are most certainly one and that the Holy Spirit is working in you to show you that. But that's what Paul tells us. And the next time we come together, uh, we will look at uh, more outworkings of what this idolatry does in various areas of our lives. Paul certainly was uh, not in the closet about what was going on in the culture. I mean, he's in writing to Rome, for heaven's sakes. And he's doing it from Corinth, which was the Las Vegas of Macedonia. See, these cities, we're not new. Nothing's new under the sun. Nobody's any more wicked than anybody else ever was. We all need Jesus let us pray father we thank you again for this truth that we 
were able to see because your Holy Spirit opened our eyes to it. We pray that it would have the effect of shining a spotlight on where we need to go next and how we need to deal with it. So, Father, we pray that as we think about these things, even today, this afternoon, next week, that you would uncover our idols, not to shame us or just to expose us, but to show us how much we need the good news of the person of Jesus and his work on our behalf. Because that's freedom, and that is true joy. Now, may we, as we come to the moment in our service where we give back, may we give as people who are deeply moved by your graciousness to rescue us from the wrath that is to come. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.